I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. Yes, as the gentleman said, this is Chachi and... Here we are. Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Get Back to the Beatles. And you may know that, or you may not know, that I host Breakfast with the Beatles in New England. We're heard in New Hampshire and Maine on 92.1 and 97.1 FM, and in Boston and Massachusetts on 91.9 FM, the WUMB radio network. And we're proud to be here on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com along with my co-host, the very handsome gentleman, Mr. David Gallant, who teaches the Beatles class at Suffolk University. And then we also, yes, a little bit of applause. And then we also have a spiritual advisor, producer, and the man in charge of the Boston Podcast Network, David Yaz. So thank you, Chuck. Splendid thank you to be both. here as usual. We want to thank our sponsors. We're brought to you in part by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. And we have some a couple of special guests today. We have an additional guest in our studio. We're in Sharon, Mass. Oh, sorry, we're in Westwood, Massachusetts. That's right. We are in Westwood, Massachusetts, in these beautiful studios. Thank you very much. And we're also here with another Beatles professor, Mr. Steve Minichello. Steve and I. Thank you. Steve and I go back many, many years, as I do with David Gallant. And Steve teaches the Beatles class at Worcester State University out there in Worcester, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. <laughs> Thank you very much. You didn't, you didn't say the handsome Steve Minichello, probably oh, because of my age, I would imagine. And yes, No, uh, you are the handsome uh, Steve Minichello who just returned from Belgium last night. And he brought everybody in the studio waffles. So I apologize to our guest on the phone. <laughs> But we do have a very special guest on the phone, and he has put out a book that's pretty amazing. Uh, a beautiful hardcover, like a coffee table book, done so well. And I was so impressed by uh, receiving this book, and we had to have him on the show. Uh, it, the, the book is called NEMS and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the U.S., 1964 to 1966. So please welcome our guest joining the panel today, Mr. Terry Crane. Hello, Terry. How are you? Hello. Thanks, Chachi. Glad to be here. Oh, it's great to be here with you. And I know that you were pretty excited because we have two professors sitting opposite me uh, at the di on, on the panel today. And you uh, have also done this kind of thing. Give us a little bit of a background on it. I, I did. I, was, I worked for over 31 years at John A. Logan College, a community college in Southern Illinois, and I was basically the dean for student services. But in my free time, I uh, designed uh, the Beatles uh, online course and uh, taught it for two years at the college. And it was a regular college level course, three hour credit, uh, general elective. And it was pretty cool. It, it went over very well at the college. So when I saw my two esteemed colleagues were going to be on here also that who have done the same thing. I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, Ted, Terry, this is uh, David Gallant from uh, Suffolk University. I've actually also inhabited uh, that world you inhabited as a full-time administrator. I actually have been in uh, undergraduate advising, um, <clears throat> the uh, sort of academic services side of the house, uh, for uh, over 20 years or so. And I, I guess I am you know, intrigued. I can maybe follow up with you later. 
as to um, how you were able to get away with teaching an online Beatles class. I mean, that's one thing that <laughs> that was my our, question. Our too, university <laughs> has always been uh, always been very careful about, especially no matter how many different password protections or doing it through a certain website or justifying the the use of this material, copyrighted material for educational purposes. It's always a fine line, right? So, um, no, I'd love to be able to offer my class uh, fully online, but I think uh, I might have to overcome a few things with uh, risk management. At the university, but that's all legal talk, and uh, I don't really want to get into uh, having to talk about lawyers uh, today. Exactly. <laughs> Although David Yaz is a lawyer, our producer and uh, spiritual advisor. Uh, so there you go. Fantastic, Steve. You want to say hello to Mr. Terry Crane? Hello, Terry. I, uh, I enjoyed the book so much. Um, it was just, uh, it was so nice to see a, a collectible book like this that really wasn't a how much is it worth book, but just the enjoyable <laughs> of what the book really was um, and, and of course the uh, I think it's laid out beautifully also yeah it's a beautiful book well, thank, thank you so Terry how many years of research this is a and you must be thrilled as to how the book came out because it's really a handsome book that any Beatle fan would love in their collection uh, how many years of research did it did it uh, exceed your expectations with the final product and how did you collect all these items I think that I think it did exceed expectations. I had an idea of what I wanted it to look like. Uh, I retired about a year and a half ago, and I, I had a lot of stuff, a lot of information up to that point. But when I retired, it was full time game on, uh, you know, going into this stuff. So that allowed me to really research this uh, this area more and more. And you mentioned the uh, price guides and all that kind of thing. There are wonderful price guides out there now uh, and always have been. I've got many of these price guides on my shelf here that talk about Beatles items and everything like that. But I was always a little um, a little underwhelmed that when I went to look up an item like a, a Remco doll or something like that, the, the price guides were always very good, but they would go, well, the doll is a four-inch doll with black hair and uh, George is holding a guitar. And then the rest of the description always talked about how much it was worth. Well, I really didn't care. Unlike most people, I really didn't care how much it was worth. What I wanted to know is, well, what company made this doll? Who designed this? Who in the world had the idea to make it look like this? And is the company still around? And is there stories around uh, making the doll, the designing it, and that kind of thing? So that was the whole emphasis of what I did for the book. I wanted to expand the, the actual history of the items and didn't really care about the, the price of them. Now, are there, did you get every item or are there items that you did not put in the book that were legitimate NEMS Celtab items? Well, what, what I tried to do was if you look at all the user guides and if you look at the price guides and you look at internet sites and everything like that, Everybody always says there was about 150 items, but no one had a defined list. You might find a, an internet site that might have 98 things listed, and you might find another book that had 102, but they weren't the same ones. So I kept trying to finally put all this together in one A through Z list that I could follow that said these are the things that are licensed. I really didn't care about the, uh, the well, they call them the fake or the reproduction or the unlicensed items that were in 
uh, around the U.S., but I wanted to finally try to get a list. And I think, I think it's pretty well uh, inclusive of everything. Now, of course, you know, the moment I say that, in two years I'll run across something. But for right now, I think I did a, a pretty good job of trying to weed everything out and try to finally get uh, one list together of so when people say there were about 150 items, well, here's the list right now. Well, I think you did a great job. And a bunch of items uh, in your book are in my collection, and I made a quick little list. And, and of course, gentlemen in the, the room here with me, chime in whenever you'd like. But the Nestle dolls, I had actually sent out for those after buying Nestle's uh, uh, the, the, the powder. And uh, exactly, yeah, and I got the dolls. I still have them. And as a, I was a dumb kid, what I, I should have kept the container. But what I did was I <laughs> cut out the back where the Beatles are on the back of the container, and I put them in my scrapbook, which is in your book. And I wish I kept the entire container mm. of the Nestle's powder, but I did send it away, and I got those dolls. So I still have them today. That's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, Terry, uh, I, yeah. I'm I'm curious how many with how many people you have spoken to either in the um, in the comp, uh, compilation phase of this, or just, of course, when you've spoken to friends and associates and those out on the Beatles circuit, um, <clears throat> how many people start with the way Chachi just ended his small narrative? I wish I had, and then fill in the blank. And, and so, you know, I mean, I, I, I went through this many well, years I ago. Wish I saved. I, wish I, I, saved. I, I went through this many years ago with, uh, you know, with baseball cards, and and there's, you know, there's a, a yeah. similar sort of market growth, although that probably um, is 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 in a different sort of, you know, economic format if one were to sort of scale this out than uh, the than the Beetle marketplace. But of course, if all of my friends, if we were not putting the 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 uh, the rookie cards of, uh, of of Johnny Bench or Cal Ripken in uh, in our bicycle spokes, then if everybody kept them, <laughs> then the value would not be what it is, so right? True. So That's I right. understood that, exactly. you know, and then it didn't didn't take long when I finally, you know, in college did understand the the laws of of uh, supply and demand. Uh, so that I wish narrative, I guess you you must you must hear a lot, and I like the way that in the beginning of the text, before we get to the inventory A to Z, right, which a lot of people yep. want to get to, I of course was very interested in the narrative uh, the way it is set up and in the other voices that are brought in you know uh, uh, friends of Chachi and mine like like, like Jude Kessler um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know to, to talk about what this meant to the community at the time right and and uh, <clears throat> and how important it was to like a young teenager uh, their identification and I'm, I'm also fascinated with the the advertisements for the products as much as the products themselves when mm -hmm. you show the clippings right and it made me think of yes. things that maybe we can talk about later on. Think of things like, well, it was often a phenomenon as our as our friend uh, Candy Leonard wrote the book Beetleness about how people actually use some of these materials on a day to day basis. She she coined the term beetling, and I loved your coining of the word beetle legging as a, as a form of bootlegging, which was great. You know how like you know young men or or boys. Uh, the sales of the boots and the jackets that were meant for them because people had assumed, well, this was always young girls doing it. But of course, any any merchandiser is going to think, well, that's only half the population. I've got to reach the guys as well, you know, at a time when they weren't quite getting onto the music train as much. So I think those elements of the book that you set up 
and then we get into the the literal laundry list of everything, right? Is is really sort of fascinating. That's great, and and that alone, I will tell you, um, I may you know uh, photocopy or post on my course management site for my students to read in the fall. Just letting you know. There you go. There you go. One of the things that I, I think was interesting when I got going in this is I start asking out. I start asking on on Facebook sites or social media sites, or I start asking people about, you know, do you have specific stories about specific items? And all of a sudden, I start getting these wonderful little one and two and three sentence things that says, well, I remember when I had the baseball cards, you know, the the teacher in my blank class took them away or blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And, And I kept getting these stories and I started realizing these stories are, are really part of the coolest part of the items. You know, so you, I sprinkled in these stories, like if there might be a story about a wig, well, I sprinkled that into the little uh, area when I talked about the wig and that kind of thing. And the more of those stories that came in, like you said, that added a, a, a boy, I wish I still had that uh, to context to some of these items. And it, 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 it helped them, uh, connect a little bit more to to the items themselves, and I have found to a back to a marketing standpoint, I have found that when I am out in giving presentations or something about the book, and I'm at a table, you know, obviously with my books and everything, if I open a couple books on the table, and when the people come by and they stop and they look down, and they might see the doll, or they might see a drum, or, or a glass, or a guitar, and they start flipping through the book, they inevitably, they will tell me, they go, oh my God, I used to have that, yeah. or or I remember when, and that that really draws people into this, is it, it what it what it does, I, I, I call it, it, it turns on a memory trigger, it remembers, has them remember something about that item that they connect with when they were young and everything, and it brings back all these great memories, and it's a great connection between the, the person standing across from me who remembers these items in this book and how they felt when they first had them. Hey, Terry, this is uh, Steve, Steve Minichello, and uh, uh, for, the, for our listeners who really uh, aren't aware of it, I'm wondering if you could give us a synopsis of how CellTab happened originally the yes the the Beatles management company in 1963 was called NIMS uh, North End Music Store that was their the name of their company well they started getting over in England they started getting all these things coming to them that says we from the England from England and they would say we want to make a button we want to make a, a sweater we want to make a patch we want to make a doll or something like this and it, the, it became so overwhelming over in England and the NIMS company over there that Brian Epstein, they brought, the Beatles manager, he said, well, you know what? He said, I don't want to make these decisions. This is coming really big. I am going to farm this out. We're going to have a, a little company inside of our company, and we're going to call it the, the one in England we will call it Strams Act. That's going to be the company that it, here in England is going to take care of our merchandise. They're going to make all the decisions, what we want to make, what what we're going to help with, and all that kind of stuff. And then when the Beatles, about in December and all, they started thinking about coming to Ed Sullivan and all that, they said, okay, we've got a company to take care of us in England. We want another company to take care of us in the U.S. 
And those Wiley uh, Nims people, what did they do? They took the word Beatles, they spelled it backwards, and they said, that's the name of our U.S. company, but we're going to call it Celtab or Celtab, or there, there wasn't, nobody really knew how to pronounce it, so I'm going to call it Celtab. So they have the Nims as the parent company, and you've got two offsets of the parent company. You've got Stransac that takes care of the UK merchandise, and you've got Celtab that takes care of the US merchandise. And what was the deal? Well, the and this is where uh, a lot of people probably disagree with me, but that's okay. Uh, the Brian Epstein made a deal that he and the Beatles and everybody would get 10% and he would give the the uh, company taking care of him ninety uh, percent. And hmm. you know, wow. at the time, at, at the time, there was no blueprint of what is was this good or bad. At the time, there was no uh, marketing guru that says this is what you do. Stop this me. had never been this a merchandising idea like this, even though, and I talk about this in the book with the history with Disney and the Elvis and uh, and Superman and Batman and uh, Hopalong Cassidy and all this, were all great merchandise and all that, but there was never a, an impact like the Beatles had at that moment. So there was no, there was nothing to go and say, was this a good thing or bad? So you probably got Brian Epstein who's sitting there thinking, let me get this straight. If all I do is give you the Beatles names and I give you a couple photographs or whatever, you're gonna give me 10% and I don't have to do anything uh, except take care of the check. This is the greatest gig on the planet. You know, and so, so he had, he really had nothing to go by. He had no history, nobody had anything to go by. So he signs the agreement and that's what the agreement is is that he gets 10 percent and everybody else gets 90. Yeah, now, terry so I, terry I, one I, one thing that I, I i i couldn't get over though when you're mentioning this in brian's approach is uh, all that was in the back of my head was was brian's unshakable belief and faith that musically and as entertainers that the beatles would be bigger than elvis but somehow like you're saying there was no blueprint um, uh, when it came to the merchandising area where he wasn't necessarily thinking in the same vein because it was uncharted territory and not what he would have considered proper entertainment business. The only thing he knew of what you mentioned before was that overnight no one was buying coonskin caps anymore. Yet exactly. in, in merchandising, <laughs> even though it wasn't, it wasn't going to be the case, he never felt it would be the case with his boys, that they would endure that overnight obsolescence, that one day it was just going to end. He never felt that for them entertainment-wise, but in the back of his head, he was like, well, you know what? If this seems like a good enough deal, I'm going to take what I can get as long as this lasts. So he had kind of a different decision calculus, if you will, for the merchandising than he did in believing them in, as, as, as entertainers. Um, and I, I, I wrote it down because I think it's, it's, it's the greatest line because I am like, uh, unlike my my esteemed colleagues here, I, I am not a collector. I mentioned to both Chachi and Steve before we came in that my my most prized Beatle possessions are any gifts that my students give me at the end of the semester. <laughs> um, they've gotten given me books and everything like that. So that's that's what I, yeah. I kind of hold on to. Um, 
is your line that uh, hindsight gives everyone a more accurate lens to formulate their educated opinion. And it, it's, exactly. it's, it, it's a much more accurate, I think, in a, in a, uh, just a, a nicer and a, and a better way, a more rhetorically efficient way of saying that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? The what ifs and if this had been done. And, of course, now we have that vantage point because this was uncharted territory and the sustainability has also been uncharted as well. I mean, what your, your book is fantastic, and as you know, it is merely at this point a snapshot of that time, which is why I think it's great to have this whole catalog that you've put together for just that two-year period. Right. Because that's what really gives us this sense of what was going on in just that short window. So instead of having something that we've got, you know, uh, 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 a mile wide and an inch deep, we've got, you know, an acre wide, but but 10 feet deep, which is why I think it's a it's a great study, because it has that nice limited range historically. And I think one of the one of the things that is, is a little bit different from you have the Elvis phenomenon and the coonskin hat and Wizard of Oz and you got all this kind of stuff. But one thing that I think is it sets the Beatles apart is none of these other things had a one big bang moment the way I look at this. All right. You got the Beatles at 8, eight o'clock Eastern time on February 9th who hit the Ed Sullivan show. That was a major big bang moment for the, the the not only musically and all that, but the merchandising ideas just started flowing. The the coolest thing I think is not only that night, which is February ninth, not only that night, but the next morning, when the Nims Management Company and Celtae talk about they're they're waking up on that Monday morning. It's 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 after the Beatles. They're getting out of their hotel rooms, and there's people beating on their hotel room doors. So you open the doors, and you've got uh, businessmen who've drove, driven over from New York. You've got the people from the Midwest and the Los Angeles who've flown all night to get there, and they're beating on their doors, and they're going, "Hey, we've got an idea. We want to make a doll of these guys. They might only last six months, but we want to make a doll. We've got money in our pockets." We've got cars outside. What do you want? Let's sign something right now. And that, over the next few days and few months and everything, just catapulted these 150 items like that. And it, it, it became such a marketing uh, genre right then. And all these other things, I think, before that, like we talked about, they didn't have that big boost, like that one big bang, like the night of Ed Sullivan did. So I think that helped tremendously get all this together now. And we'll go back to Brian for just a second. And yes, Brian, everything you said was was true. I agree 100%. Now, when they handed Brian the first royalty check for $9,700, and and this was, I think, in late February, and Brian from, and Seltab handed him the check for $9,700, he goes, oh, this is wonderful. He goes, how much of this is yours? <laughs> and they went, no, Brian, that's, this is your 10% cut. And Brian does some real quick math in his head and goes, well, wait a minute, if I get 9700 that means they got $90,000 somewhere. <laughs> yeah. They go, time out here. And then all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off, uh, and he says, "I maybe I've made an incorrect decision here. Well, I think Brian kind of approaches this much like he did with the Ed Sullivan show. He thought it was like this huge marketing deal. I mean, Elvis got 50 grand from one appearance on Ed, 
And uh, he gave Ed Sullivan three appearances by the Beatles for, I think, 10 grand. And, you know, I, I, I hear that, that for years Brian has been scrutinized for this. Even Paul said, you know, we got screwed for millions. It was all Brian's fault. He was green. And I think it's kind of unfair to Brian because he's not here to defend himself. And I wonder what he would be saying, you know, if he was around today in defense of what he did back then. Right. This reminds me always of when you go to your favorite team's your basketball game and your team loses by one. Everybody in the stands is the perfect coach at that morning, yeah. at that moment. <laughs> Everybody knows, why did we foul him? Why didn't we call timeout? Well, that was a stupid shot to take. You know, every, everybody is, is just the best coach in the world. Well, they weren't a few seconds before. Uh, and th- that's exactly what happened here. Everybody now that studies this is the best coach in the world. But at that moment, you know, the game was still going on and there was there was nothing to go by. Well, I, I think that uh, I think your, your your point about uncharted territory uh, is is one of the reasons why there are the classic or the round number of 150 products. Right. Or is it 105? Did I, 150. 150. 150. So that, that bit about uncharted territory, that, that everything is out there. Let's put the images on, on everything to, from, from uh, uh, paintbrushes to panties, right? So um, that, uh, that uncharted territory and still the nagging or the, the reality of pop acts being so disposable and this won't last, let's cash in any way, any way possible – Still, that kind of makes me think that Brian would never have been allowed by his family to do any of their business dealings this way. I mean, the, the furniture stores and the, the Epstein Empire in Liverpool in the north of England certainly would not have survived making bad deals and, and contracts and things like that. So, um, but no one, you know, as you're saying, no one knew how to do this, right? And now Correct. this this blueprint of what not to do became the blueprint of what to do. So instead of that big bang <laughs> moment, everybody talks about an opening weekend for the latest Marvel franchise and the tie-ins that you're going to get at Burger King because of it, right? So Exactly. Yeah, but it's it, I can understand because... Brian had been brought up in the family business and to know how to run a business in a way. And he was a fantastic, you know, a, a record merchant, if you will, and then became a, a cultural merchant and a show business entrepreneur. But this is still something that maybe he felt in a way was in some ways beneath him. The merchandising aspect. What do you think about that? That maybe this aspect of show business was seemingly a little bit too tawdry. And it, it might have it might have been it it wasn't it, nobody had gone down this road he didn't know really what to do or what not to do he uh, he decided to let to have these two new companies make all the decisions for him because he really he probably didn't really want to get involved that much in it or or the 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 details of it as you might say so I I, I think that might be part of it also. I think part of the problem, too, was Brian. I mean, there was many, there's a bunch of people in the Beatles uh, circle that happened upon, you know, Brian Epstein and they became multimillionaires, Dick James being one of them. And he's, he should have found someone better than Nicky Byrne. Because, uh, you know, I read in your book of the things that Nicky Byrne did that he actually, they actually, Nems actually, actually sued Celtabe. You know, and, and he was. 
He, Nikki was sus suspected of, in your book, you say, he's spending $150,000 for his personal comfort, 19K a week for his girlfriend's hotel room, charge accounts at Fifth to Have Shops, a chauffeur to drive his two uh, Cadillacs, and he even owed Nems 55K. And that's just from May 1964. <laughs> so, Brian, yeah, I, I don't know where he based, you know, how he came to these decisions or who to hire. There must have been someone better well, than Nikki Byrne. Well, if, if you know, I I have asked other people about Nicky Byrne, and they say, well, he was uh, it, it, the only where I kind of think if he was a lot around today, he would probably be what is known as a social influencer. Even though I don't know what that is, but <laughs> a, he's a social influencer. He's he's at parties. He's at all these different things. Uh, he used to be, you know, a, a bartender. He used to do this. He used to do a lot of things, but he just knew a lot of people and was around uh, a lot of people. Not very long ago, I ran into Tony Bramwell, uh, famous Beatle, Beatle person, knows them all, CEO of Apple, all this kind of stuff. Worked on him and worked with him in the city. I said, Tony, I said, what was... Uh, Nicky Burns, what was his really, you know, draw and all that kind of thing. And he thought, and he thought, and he looked at me, he says, well, he was blonde. <laughs> and I went, that's it? <laughs> oh, my word. He oh, was geez. blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. The I new thought, well, that, that, that makes as much sense as everything else that I've read about yeah. it. So there was just something. <laughs> and I love the fact that the New York Daily News called Nikki Byrne one of the last great spenders of other people's money. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we also have to remember that once the, once the uh, I mean, we know the Beatles, we know they put their time in, they paid their dues like no other. They did their 10,000 hours before they even broke. But when Epstein came on board, it happened so quick. Yeah. And, and you know, I think his only, yeah. Epstein's only, uh, you know, uh, the precedent was, was Elvis and Colonel Parker. And they weren't in, in talks with each other. Nobody else was as big at that time. And, and you even say in your book, um, Terry, that even Colonel Parker gave Brian credit for mining something that he never really even considered. Exactly, which is more of an emphasis out there of that there was no blueprint for any of this. Yeah, right. And I mean, did, was it the same deal all over the world? You know, he, you know, because you, you, this book is focused on the U.S., but was it ten percent worldwide? Uh, that is a wonderful question. Mm -hmm. I have not yet researched the. You know, a lot of this stuff. It's the next book. Shipped. Yeah. other countries like that so they may not have ever had like what what was the percentage in germany or in france or something like that they may have just farmed a lot of this same stuff out and and kept their stuff uh themselves in fact i bet if we go looking closer i bet the strams act the uk part of this whole thing probably took care of a lot of the international stuff mm -hmm. also and you know it's interesting when you look at today I mean, that's how Apple makes a lot of money through merchandising, the Monopoly games, you know, all these different items that are coming out. Uh, and now a predominant piece of their business is merchandising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, I was just commenting. So what, what, whatever blueprint. <laughs> oh, by the way, Chachi. That he wrote, yeah. Yeah. Yep. By the I way, I, I, I heard that, you know, Trivial Pursuit. Pr pursuit. pursuit. <laughs> I'm giving it away He's now. Italian. I'm giving away the joke. It's <laughs> Trivial Pursuit. pursuit. <laughs> it's coming out with an Italian version <laughs> called oh, Trivial Pursuit. Go. Okay. What are you doing? That's funny. But I, I noticed some interesting facts from your book, and maybe you can comment. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe you can comment late. on them. Um, 
The Beatles motor scooter, I think that happened, but the Beatle mobile never happened. Is that correct? <laughs> I saw that, you know, in all my research, I saw that quote somewhere. I saw that and it was in a magazine article and I thought, oh my gosh, I have never run across this. And I have, I polled all my collectors. I talked to the people who I are, are very, I think, memorabilia gurus and all this and no one ever has ran across uh, that so I think that was one of those that maybe they threw around in a meeting and it never really yeah. even got to a drawing board. That's funny and I and Professor Gallant brought this up earlier the the beetle legging, which was another term for bootlegging beetle items. Now did Brian have a team um, looking for bootlegged items? I know they had what salespeople that would go into stores and send them's lists of stores that were selling items and they would follow up. Is that how it worked? Yes, they would. Uh, there were, there were. Well, the the people that had the license, uh, when they started seeing other people coming out with their their same items, they would start reporting it back to NIMS. Uh, there's some. I even talk in the book about two of the lawsuits. One about the uh, uh, one about the uh, the, sh- the shirts. One about the uh, dolls, which is great. And there's another one out there about the buttons, where where the guy who would would the distribute the distributor of the beetle buttons he would send his guys out to stores and buy all the fake and reproduction buttons and he would send them right to nims and go here it is aren't you going to do something about it and nims did start suing a, a lot of places but there were some that they just never got around to it so it, it added to some frustration to some of the quote legit companies who were making things that some sometimes there weren't they weren't things filed up on, but the the Remco doll was filed up on, the, the shirts was filed up on, and uh, many things were filed up on. There is a great if you're ever looking for uh, a, a neat thing to watch on YouTube. There's a great three or four minute newscast from about early 1964 uh, from the Upton, New York area, where the lady goes into a, a wig factory and they're making beetle wigs right and left. The assembly line's going and these people are walking by with these beetle wigs on and they look so silly, but it's wonderful. And the guy <laughs> talks about how much they're making and uh, how many they have to make. And he says something about, and even our... Uh, our women who have young children at home take these wigs at home and work on them at night because we have to get them together so quickly. And when the whole thing is over and they tell you about the wig factory and all this, and then I realized, well, this is a, that wig factory is not even a licensed wig factory. That's a fake one. Uh, they, they're just making yeah. wigs to try to make some money. <laughs> but they don't crazy. mention that in the whole story. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's Are You Not Entertained? The was I and and the am I entertained? Can I start that again? Sorry. (laughs) Am I entertained? I did it again. (laughs) Dumbass! Are you entertained? Ah! All right, sorry, sorry. It's Ed Nathanson. I'm here to give you the podcast that I've always wanted to do. That's talking about movies. That's talking about music, sports, pop culture. That's talking to some of the best people in employer branding around the world. Are you not entertained? Can I start that again? From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. You're listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPred. I think those of uh, those of us who are first-generation fans, uh, you have everything 
kind of nicely laid out, 150, uh, 150 items or so laid out, nice and neat and clean. But those of us that were around in 64 and 65 and 66, uh, you know, we can tell that it was overwhelming what the merchandising was. It was something like, uh, I always think of like, uh, you know, Woodstock. They were supposed to have 100,000 people and eventually just said, just let everybody in because it's, it's, it's way too big. It's overwhelming. There's too many people. There were Beatle everythings. Uh, I mean, what you see in your book is, I think, a, it's, of course, it's legitimate, but it's a slice of, of, of how much was out there. I don't even know how they could litigate all this stuff. There was so much of it. Oh, exactly. And I have, I have, in doing the research for the book, you know, I would run into almost, uh, you know, if there's 150 items, I would run into another 100 that I would have to make a decision and go, you know, this wasn't licensed or, or, or you know, it's like, and you're exactly right. There was so much stuff out there that you had to start weeding through what was, quote, and, and I call it licensed versus unlicensed, you know, but you got to remember, even the unlicensed items, uh, that's still over 50 years old. <laughs> so you got, you have stuff that even though they were, you know, quote, fake items, like that fake wig we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, that thing is still over 50 years old. It's still a, uh, was made in the 60s and all that, and all the other cool stuff was. It just didn't have the legal document attached to it mm-hmm. as all it was. Well, and I'm a first-generation Beatle fan as well, and I distinctly remember going into a 5 and 10 uh, in Watertown, Massachusetts, called Dines, and it was just loaded with Beatle stuff. And I was, a little, I was, I was what, eight years old? And I didn't have the money, but boy, if I could have. But I do have, and I, let's talk about the Remco dolls, because you had already brought that up. And they were kind of ahead of the curve. They reached out before the Ed Sullivan Show saying, we see some potential here. Is that correct? Yeah, they, they were ready to go. Remco was a very uh, uh, progressive place. They took the offense on a lot of things. They had the Remco dolls ready to go. Um, when And they told uh, all the other manufacturers, and they said, we, we are the only licensed uh, business to be able to put these out, and don't you guys ever try to put them out, or we will go after you. They took out ads in the trade magazines to <laughs> warn them, don't do that. And, of course, like good businessmen do, somebody did. Uh, Goldberg Company uh, came out with a doll just a couple months after the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan, and they called it. Uh, they didn't call it a Beatles doll, but it looked amazingly like them. And instead of holding a guitar, they said it was holding a banjo. And that's what made it different <laughs> from a Beatles doll. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, you- and then uh, and Remco said, no way. So they sued them. And uh, and they and Remco won, and the banjo dolls had to be destroyed and all that. But you you run into stuff like that all the time. And you put the 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 Goldberg uh, dolls picture of it in your book with the Remcos, and the Goldberg Go- Goldberg dolls they kind of look evil. The faces, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of like bigger eyes. They're kind of possessed beetles. And I'm like, boy, the Remco dolls look so lovable. I have a full set at home in the boxes, and they're very very special to me. But Remco was ahead of their time, and I thought that was that was great and good for them. And it's a prized yes. possession nowadays. Yes, and that it's one of those iconic. And in fact, that is the uh, memorabilia piece that probably started my trek years ago when I when I was uh, a lad in the '60s, and uh, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan and everything. My sister had the George 
Remco doll. And it sat on her in her room as she was playing the, the Beatles. She was older than I was. But I would walk down the hall and see that George doll staring at me all this time. And I can remember it to this day. And she still has that doll. And I use that, the, 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 some of the pictures of the Remco dolls in there, that's of her doll. And that's what kind of started me down this, down this track was the Remco doll because that was kind of the, the, the one piece I think of things that everybody can relate to. Everybody could get, it was like a dollar and a quarter, sometimes even less than that, uh, at the local Woolworths or the five and dime or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's the one that everybody could get and sit right there on their desk and look at every night before they went to bed. So, Terry, though, why did you, um, and you tell this story early on, shortly after you talk about your sister's George doll, is that you... But not at the time, but later, you became obsessed with the soap bottle. <laughs> and now, why? Now, why? Why particularly that that item? Because and I've heard of it in this collectible circles that that's kind of big as well. Um, and uh, but why the soap bottle? R- Ringo sucked me in. I, now, I and was, it was particularly by. the Ringo soap bottle, right? The, the Ringo. He's. He's, sta- he's standing here staring at me as we are talking right now. And that was uh, that right was one of the right best on sellers. My desk here. That was one of the best sellers too, right? Ringo always sold it, well. It, it was. Oh, and that's that's one of the best stories there. You got you got the Ringo doll. For some reason, I'm just drawn to that. It, it looks so cool, just sitting there staring at you. Colgate Palm Olive, who is still going strong today, they came up with this idea that they wanted to have a Ringo. Soaky doll. They called it a Soaky doll. They had other dolls. They had Rocky and Bullwinkle and all kind of dolls that you could take in the bathtub with you, screw off the head and put your bubble bath in there and life was good. Well, hmm. Colgate says, we want to get in on this like everybody else. So they do market research and they come up with the idea during their market research that the two most popular Beatles in the U.S. in 1964 and 65 were Paul and Ringo, and by golly, that's who they make two soapy dolls. No, no, they, they they didn't George, have a they didn't they have a lot of time. They they didn't have a lot of time for market research, considering how quickly this went. So, was market research basically one of the one of the PR people asking their young daughter? I'm thinking like old episodes of <laughs> Mad Men, where this is the research that was done, and now let's let's it let's could, roll it out. Yeah, it could have been all the all the stuff. All my research and other people in this tell me market research, but I'm kind of like you. Uh, market research could be let's ask let's ask my sister what she <laughs> the two that she likes like that. Now you can take it even further because I even talk about if you think that's bad when star fans out of Coral Gable, Florida, when they got the license to make sculptures, little bitty sculpture heads, they find out Ringo is the most popular Beatle in the US. They only make Ringo. They don't even make the other three guys. <laughs> you know, so so it, it's all relative there of of how much money you got and what you want to do really quick and get it out on the market. Oh, and back to the Soaky Doll just for a minute. Of these 150 items, there were actually television commercials made for two of these items. And if you're ever out on YouTube or whatever, find those because they're classics. The two items they made commercials for or are your inflatable dolls from Nestle's that That's you just right. talked about a while ago That's right. and the Beatles Soaky Dolls. That's the two things that have actual television commercials made in the mid-60s about them. We'll check that out. But, you know, well, I think probably for me, and maybe I'm wrong, but the strangest item I thought in the book were the Beatles were on isoderm boxes. Is, is, that, 
Is that the strangest <laughs> item? Did you see that? That's on page yeah, 163. You, I have it all yeah. uh, singled out here. But you're, isoderm. You're at the local drugstore, need some isoderm, and while you're at it, <laughs> let's clip the coupon and send it in and get some pictures of, of the lab. <laughs> it's pretty good. That is funny. And then and the, my, Go ahead. My favorite, by far, is grow hair on the beetles. That that and that's my favorite item out there uh, is grow hair on the beetles, and it was a legit licensed item. What you did is you sent off uh, to this company, and they sent you a piece of cardboard, and this piece of cardboard <laughs> had four areas on it, and there was one an area for John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and they had little perforations, so you you undid George for example, and you took George and there was a picture of George on there and on George's hair, instead of hair, he had chia seeds. <laughs> so you would put George in a glass of water and after a week, George would start growing hair and you could invite all your friends over and they could watch you give a haircut to the Beatles. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. It's pretty amazing and you had the little entry form <laughs> and you could send in your money one set for only a dollar plus 25 cents postage and handling. Sorry, right. no CODs. <laughs> That's pretty right. funny. But the, the other and one... You guys, you guys talked about ads a while ago, about, about how the ads are, are, are almost as cool as some of these items. Play, the things like this, like the girl here on the Beatles, those ads that you look at in the book, you, those are classic. I mean, you can't write stuff like that anymore. I mean, yeah. watch them grow their own hair live in your own room. I mean, they're just, they're just wonderful when you read this stuff in detail like that. Right, and you know, I, I, I was astounded by uh, page 143. I don't know if the gentlemen in the room here know this, but did you know if you bought two cans of Wagon Master Beans... You could get four autographed portraits of the Beatles. <laughs> and the pictures in the book with the beans and the two guys wearing Beatle wigs. And uh, who doesn't love beans? Well, I don't. <laughs> I never had beans, but I thought that was pretty amazing. Was there anything Brian Epstein wouldn't do? Did he, did he pass on any particular items? Or did he have a say? Did he have a say? He really didn't have a say, and I don't think he wanted a say, because I actually asked Tony Bramwell that same question. I said, Tony, other people have asked me about Brian making a decision and all that. And he looked at me, and he said, the only people, for the U.S. market, he said, the only people that made this decision were the cell tab thieves. <laughs> the I cell thought, tab well, thieves. Okay, now I know what you think about the cell tab people. He said, Brian never made any decisions like this. Uh, that that was the the either the the uh, San, uh, Scranzac or the or the Celtag people making the decision. It's amazing, and I guess one guy can't handle everything the 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 recordings, the tours. Uh, it'd be tough for one guy to handle that, but I, I wish he hired better people. But you know, we weren't around back then, and and <laughs> you know, it, it's it's pretty crazy. But a couple of other th items that I found appealing. Uh, <laughs> this is so crazy because I have these at home. The Beatles Buddies Club, and that was with who was that guy? Uh, you know, Pat Boone. Pat Boone got involved Pat with Boone. the Beatles, and there's a story about about Pat approaching the Beatles, and Ringo kind of took a swipe at him. Can you tell that story? Exactly. Yeah, and he he also that same one he uh, he he got on uh, Paul McCartney for for smoking. Uh, right. So that how how could. How, yeah, how how could he 
uh, smoke in front of the people like that. And, and Paul just said, you know what, that, we're sorry, but that's what we do. Uh, we're not going to change, you know, things like that just just for that and all that. But yeah, Pat saw the he saw the writing on the wall. He's like everybody else. He says, I got to get involved in this. So he cuts a deal with the uh, some guys making beetle portraits, uh, and he and he gets to be the spokesman of them. Uh, gets into the business, and uh, they run a great um, contest where they send about forty kids around the United States to the Las Vegas Beetle show that they had there and put them all in the front row and uh, uh, fly them all in. They all get to beat, meet Pat Boone and uh, get their pictures with the uh, big shots and everything. So it, it's a it's a great whole story about that whole thing. There. And he got approved by cell tape to do this, right? Yep, he sure did. It was a it was a licensed uh, item. It was a, he got he got in on the licensing of this product, uh, the portrait product, and uh, they let him do it. Yes. Unbelievable. And of course, he put out that Metallica, yeah. that, that heavy metal album a bunch of years ago. In a metal <laughs> mood. In a metal mood a with metal Pat mood. Boone. I mean, please. Well, it was Ozzy's neighbor, right? Or something like that. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of other items. On page 38, your Beatle banjo. I love that. I, I, and it's, it, it's really important because John learned to play guitar on a banjo by his mom, Julia. So I thought that was a great item. Exactly. Now they didn't market it that way, but it sure it sure was a great tie in that way. And they gave you the uh, self teaching method book also with it to how to play the Beatles banjo. And they did the same thing with the harmonica. They sent you a uh, an instruction booklet on how to play the harmonica for. I think there were two Beatles songs that they included in that, uh, and it was a whole marketing thing. Honer, who did the harmonica. They didn't make any special harmonica or anything for it. They just grabbed some models that they already had <laughs> out in the business. They slapped a, a little cellophane around it and said, "This is a Beatles harmonica, and here's the <laughs> the songbook with you." And it was a it was a marketing uh, coup, is what they did. And all these companies, you know, you know, they, I suppose they thought, you know, we got to strike it while the the getting's good because the Beatles could be over tomorrow. I suppose. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, and the, 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 well, the the terminology has changed as well, Chachi. Not to take us down a a PG thirteen road, but you could get a Beatles Hummer. A Beatles Hummer. Yes. <laughs> okay, is that in the book? Exactly. Uh, absolutely. How did I miss it's a Beatles a, Hummer in the book? Well, it it kind of looks like what what like my kids in school would have had a recorder, maybe as a as an yeah. ins- a very simple instrument, a very simple woodwind, but. Uh, what page is that on? No, I'm serious. Look at look at there you go. Look, Thank you, Terry. Terry wow. knows the page. <laughs> I gotta see the Beatles Hummer. Oh, there it is, there a it Beatle is. Hummer. There it is. Your Beatle Hummers uh, lead the parade, so to speak. There you go. Look at that. And, and with the Hummer. box, you get this nice. Uh, w- whether it was a card or a poster, I think uh, of uh, yeah. you know the uh, th- that's not the uh, hum along with the Beatles. Uh, not the Palladium show. That's always uh, <laughs> uh, yes. The, that that's the Palladium show. It's often miscast as the Royal Command performance photograph, but it's actually the Palladium show backstage. Right. Yeah, I love that poster. A yeah. brand new great party fun. Be first. Start a combo. With your Beatles Hummer. Well, I'm, I don't know how you I missed that. Do you, do you know which you one? You literally stuck it in your mouth. You <laughs> stuck it in your mouth, Terry. and you hummed. And that's okay. all it was. Okay. It's a family podcast and here. It, <laughs> and life goes on even today. Uh, and right you next know. to that is the Beetle Bar. I have a box at home, a Beetle Bar, a little beat up. The ice cream isn't in there, but it's, it was done by Hood, and we all love Hood. Uh, they were awesome. Um 
And so there you go with the Beetle Bar. So it, it crossed over into the food category as well. Right. And if you think about it, nobody keeps – these weren't designed to be kept. These, these were ice cream bars. Right. You know, and now you, you find the wrappers and you've got the box and all that stuff. So it was an amazing marketing thing of how in the world did people – think at least a little bit ahead and to keep this kind of stuff you know keeping a doll or something is one thing keeping an ice cream wrapper is another thing sure is it's ice cream with artificial flavoring professors chocolate flavored coating containing sweet chocolate and vegetable fat parentheses other than cocoa fat emulsifier and vanillin look at that look at all the ingredients there you know the one that uh, the one that got me in in the book uh, i was familiar of course with most of these, but there were some, like the Hummer, I hadn't seen actually uh, before. But the skateboard was yeah, something that well. I totally missed even when I was never a kid. I never that. saw that before. Never. Well, here's, here's the, and the skateboard is, a, is really a kind of neat story uh, for me. I came across the skateboard, that company, the Surf Skater, uh, they designed the Beatles skateboard. They got the license for it. They took out ads in trade magazines and everything to tell you about the skateboard. They told you the size, they told you what it was made out of, the model number and everything, and you know, coming soon and all this stuff. And after they took out the trade magazine and all that kind of stuff, I can find no one that ever found one on a store shelf. I have Something never seen happened. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All the, all the, as I say, the memorabilia gurus in the, in the country, no one has the skateboard, but it was a legit item. It was made because you can see it there in the photographs uh, right there. But something happened between taking it out in the trade magazine and actually shipping the first product to the store shelf. That I, I, it, it's very unlikely that it ever got out of the front door of the surf skater business but it was a legit item ready to be gone so how did you find that image yeah just research that's just you know when i had when i retired and i had almost two years to research it heavily i would just keep going going and and as you guys know with working on your classes and everything you know you can you can start down the road researching one thing and three hours later you're on a completely different area researching you thought how did i get over here when i started over here and i ran across it one day and i ran across it in an obscure i think it was called playthings magazine it was a trade magazine from about 1964 where they started listing all the new items coming out with toys and everything like that and there it was in black and white and 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 once i found that uh, I could find that image uh, a lot of other places, but I never found anybody and that the, actually. The, the company, had one. the company was based in Norfolk, Virginia, and yep. so uh, had you tried to contact anyone in that general area? Because a lot of times, if if you're near the source of the manufacturing, someone may have known someone who've known someone who worked on the assembly line, put together the skateboards, were in charge of delivering it to uh, wherever they were selling skateboards in the greater Norfolk, Virginia area. Right, and what I what I have, and I'll use that one as an example. When I try to find some uh, an an item that I knew was in a certain area and I knew where it was, I would get a hold of not only the Chamber of Commerce, 
but the library, the historical society, the city itself, and, and anybody around that area to, to try to help me with some research. And in the book, you see right there on the skateboard, you see an image right there of the actual phone book. I think it's from right. 1965, I think, right. uh, of, of, the, of the surf skater with their phone number and everything. So the historical society, everything found where it was. Here's the phone book entry. Yet I can find nobody at this point, and neither can anybody else that had anything to do with it or was around at that time that knew, know, knew something about it. Well, I, I've one got thing a, that I, yeah, no, go ahead. Well, one, I was just going to say one thing that I've realized with this book is that there was a day that I had to press the enter button on the computer and send the book to the printer. All right, I knew that day was coming, but I just didn't want to stop because I knew the moment I sent that that I would find <laughs> something else cool and I would find one more thing and say, I wish I would have done this. So I have never stopped this um, research. I have never stopped yet. I mean, I, I, I just can't stop. And I keep looking for more and more things uh, with, with this kind of thing. So I'm still looking for the surf skater people <laughs> like that, where I can come back and, and kind of fatten up some of my uh, future research and, and things like that. That's amazing. I will uh, say um, there was a local company here in Massachusetts, and I'll ask David Yaz, our, our producer, to call them on 411 right now. <laughs> the Beatles brooch pin manufactured by the Randall Company in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Uh, the, one of the, uh, the the jewelry manufacturing and uh, capitals of the world at the really? time. Really? Yes, uh, yeah. between Attleboro and Taunton. In fact, that's where I would. He's get, amazing. That's where I. Well, my, my grandfather worked in that industry in Attleboro, uh, family roots there. But that's also uh, the place where you would get inexpensive diamond styluses for your phonographs because oh. they 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 it was all jewelry, and so wow. that's where they had fans' tail came out of there and things like that. Isn't yeah. that amazing? It is amazing. And then Rand- I, Randall, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Tim. Randall's got all kind. No, Randall's got all kind of jewelry stuff. Uh, in there. One thing about Randall, if, if you ever look carefully at some of the Randall items and everything, the, their jewelry items came on two different types of what I'll call backing cards. Okay, You've got the early Beatles stuff from Randall that's on this kind of a bluish backing card with uh, a drawing of the four heads on there all filled in in, bl- in black. and it, it, you know, it looks alright and all this. Well then, and I asked some of the collectors about this, I think, and some of them said, you know what, they think Randall all of a sudden realized they had a coup with the jewelry and the market now, because then Randall switched to a whole beautiful looking backing card with the beetle photograph and the images are really sharp and the graphics are really sharp for all that. So you can really see a difference between when Randall first came out with the Beatles and just thought, well, we'll see what happens there. And then all of a sudden they do a 180 degree turn and it's big time uh, when they're sending out some of their jewelry and everything. Wow. Well, I think probably the best item in the book, and I have a very dear friend who's a very famous guy, and he owns one of these. It is in pristine condition. Uh, he has shown it to people in photographs, and I've seen it. I've held it. The Beatles phonograph record player, which is only yeah. 5000 made. And part of the problem back then, I guess, Terry, was it was too expensive. It was like twenty nine ninety five. <laughs> it was. If you, if you walked down the aisles of Woolworths back then and you had your shopping cart and you picked up uh, – you know, the Hummer for a dollar or two, or you picked up a Remco doll for a dollar twenty-seven, and you looked on the top shelf and you saw that the record player was twenty-nine ninety-five. 
you would go, you know what, I'm going to pass on that. And most people did. They only made 5,000 of them in the U.S. Wow. So the idea that very very few of them were sold and there was only 5,000 in the first place, that has made this thing the holy grail of the collectible item for the Beatle uh, people who are doing this. Uh, I saw one not too long ago. Uh, and it was over $10,000 out on eBay. Not that I ever look what they're worth, but this one I did because I knew it was the Holy Grail. And, you know, but that's what people want to know. Whenever I show my friends my collection, inevitably the question comes up, What's it valued at today? And I don't necessarily like to right. answer that because it's, it's, right. it's, you know, sometimes it's a buyer's market, sometimes it's a seller's market, but most times, you know, it's a seller's market. But, uh, boy, that record player, when I saw it in New York at my friend's house, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. Steve, you had a question? Yeah, and the, the other thing about the record player is it, was, it came in a box that was so tight that you had to almost destroy the box uh, to get to the record player. Ooh. So now the box is very rare also. Uh, you get out <laughs> if only we had disposable income at eight years old. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Steve had a question. Terry, are you familiar with a, a man named Joe Pope? Who uh, had a... Joe who? I'm sorry. A, a Joe Pope, a P-O-P-E, who had a one of the first real fan magazines called uh, uh, Strawberry, Strawberry Fields. Fields. Yeah. Are you familiar with Joe? Yes, and I have seen I have seen that magazine. Yes. Yeah. Well, Joe Joe isn't with us anymore. He he, he passed quite a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember in one of the earlier uh, strawberry fields in the late seventies, uh, someone had found a in an old warehouse hundreds and hundreds of boxes of Beetle sneakers. The wow. Beetle sneakers. Uh, you you don't remember? Oh this, yeah, Chachi. I don't remember that. No. And and he was selling them, and I have no idea what he was selling them for. I can't remember, but it was like somebody said, well, how do I get rid of these? Well, I'll go to the guy that has 5,000 people getting his newsletter every uh, every couple of months. And uh, and they were probably 5 or $10 that he sold them for then. Wow. And, um, and you know, I, I, I'm always wondering if something like the skateboard company, uh, somebody, th- they made, you know, 10,000 of them in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Exactly. Wasn't a question. And, and it was just yeah. a comment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just never know. I mean, when I got, I was given when I many many years ago a um, London Palladium poster that had the 1963 NEMS logo down the bottom, and a friend of mine had a store. His parents had a store when he was a kid, and it was in the cellar, wrapped up in a tube. And he gave it to me for a cup of coffee. It's framed at home now, and it's one of those. One of my. It's my favorite poster. The Palladium poster is simply amazing. But back to the phonograph, because with the phonograph you have to carry your records. I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty shoddy. Uh, the platter sack, which was simply a, a plastic bag, and you're supposed to throw all your records in there. But one, but one platter sack. It's a plastic little bag. Came with a uh, you know a, a, a cardboard printout of the I want to hold your hand, forty uh, five case cover. Uh, exactly. But I thought that was that was just like <laughs> the platter sack. It's just a bag. <laughs> it's a bag. <laughs> Unbelievable. One of the things that I, one of the things that I think was is is happened since the book came out is I'll I'll talk about this people and I'll have people come up to me after a presentation or go and they go you know what we were really big Beatle fans we were there in the 60s we bought all the stuff we could and they go but we didn't know half this stuff even existed 
you know, and, and I started thinking about that, and I asked some of the other collectors uh, who were in the know and all that, and what I had forgot and, and have since thought about and realized is that all these local five and dime, like you talked about, or the Woolworths or the local drugstores and everything, back then in the 60s, you were at the mercy of whatever your manager wanted to order every other Friday. You know, if he thought that he could sell uh, uh, some Remco dolls, he would order a few. If he would look at the record player or the ukuleles that are out there and say, well, I don't want to order these because I can only buy them as a case and they're six bucks uh, a case and I don't want to put six bucks into a case of ukuleles. I'd rather put a dollar into a, a couple of Remco dolls. So he only ordered the Remco dolls. So a lot of, of the country was at the mercy of whatever your guy wanted to order and put on your shelves. So, so that was kind of a neat byproduct of this, of a lot of people had stuff, but because of where they were in the U.S. or, or who their local manager was, they didn't know a lot of this stuff even existed. So there was a lot of what you might say uneven distribution, and, and uh, no. what, one thing that would be popular <laughs> on the West Coast uh, would not have been popular here, and then individually even local communities from town to town uh, uh, certain things would be more uh, would be more prominent, which, you know, I mean, it's it's not going to be something people want to hear. Maybe you don't want to hear it, but with a book like this, it'll just feed the advice I often give to students uh, every year. And I learned it when I was in graduate school when I took a course early on on the history of the book, and and uh, the professor told us to scour the library, do your own scavenger hunt. At this was at Boston College, because. They don't know what they've put on the shelves. And you may find a book that is very, very valuable. Not a, not a book of Kells. They had that under glass. But it says, and if you find something like that, steal it. So Chachi will, <laughs> Chachi will come to my class and he'll have oh, his good. array of items. Some items he's, he's perfectly fine with the students looking at it, passing it around like the hairbrush or even the, uh, the, the unopened package of cocktail napkins. Other things he'll be a little bit more careful with. But I'll tell my students, since Chachi mentioned before, you never know if you find something like this in your grandparents' basement or at a yard sale. They don't know what they're selling and giving away. You know, uh, you pay, pay someone at the yard sale. But out of your, your family's basements or attics, steal it. And I tell them that I know people who know people who can give them a value on this, right? <laughs> exactly. uh, so, exactly. I mean, I, usually I wouldn't want to, you know, parlay in the trade of telling people to, uh, to be thieves. But... Um, probably uh, without that concept, without that activity, you wouldn't have all of these items to talk about in some ways. The underground market. Right. And so, yeah. gentlemen, you, all of you taught in, uh, classes about the Beatles and Terry online. But when I go to, to Steve's class and I go to David's class, I do bring collectibles. And it seems like, at least with David's class, there's two items they really want to see. Or they really enjoy. First item that they really want to see is the butcher cover. Yeah, and when Absolutely. you get back home, everything is still there, right? Everything Chuck? is still okay. there. Right. I let them yeah. pass around the butcher yeah. cover. You haven't lost an item yet. Yes, I brought yeah. I brought the, the peel-off version that I have. I have uh, several different versions of First Staten. But they love to look at what it was before, and then I pull out the peel-off, and they're amazed by holding a butcher cover. But the other is a book. And they really love it. So, David, what is the book that your students just, they just think it's the greatest? And it's, it's this little book. Go ahead, tell them. Love Letters to the Beatles. <laughs> and, and it's, uh, 
So obviously it was, you know, sold and marketed like other like other books, but this is really kind of the without realizing it, it's the first version of what scholars would call a microhistory. These are primary documents, right? This is these are the, you know, epistolary evidence as we say in the in the literary trade, right? This is these are the letters and they're unvarnished, <laughs> unedited yeah. and uh, they're just very honest and, and and forthright and it's a difficult item to uh, find. I think it was first and only published in the UK maybe. Maybe. Uh, but uh, you know, it's kind of different from this type of mass marketing and licensing that sure. uh, as you're talking about, but um, I guess in going through the book did i miss ringo roll ringo roll ringo roll food? was uk yeah it was just uk was a, okay it was uk correct okay and what was that a, a food item an ice cream kind of like, like a, a kind of yeah. like kind of like a yodel or a twinkie or dolly ringo madison roll. something yeah. like that <laughs> and so steve with your class is, is is there a particular item steve that your uh, a beetle item that your fans that your listeners i'm sorry that your students <laughs> like to look at well, as far as your collection goes, it was the Beatles, uh, Beetle uh, Butcher Cover, because okay. I've I've uh, uh, I spend time it. and talk about that when yeah. it when it comes out and show them the different different alternative takes and mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, of my stuff, it's always that we were speaking about this before we started the podcast today. That huge Paul McCartney at at the Liverpool Albert Docks poster, the poster, giant poster, giant mm -hmm. poster, which <clears throat> I've never seen anyone else have and mm -hmm. and as soon as you say that to them they um uh, well they believe you immediately <laughs> so yeah. it's true but they'll believe you immediately and it becomes a big wow for them when, yeah. they, when they see that and isn't it cool isn't it cool when you're giving the presentations like that or something and i'll, I'll do this when i'm giving presentation i'll be talking about the items and then all of a sudden i'll, I'll bring out ringo i'll take ringo with me the soapy <laughs> doll and when i hold him up there's just like a, a gasp in the audience of oh my gosh it's real. He, there really is one of these things around. And that's what you're talking about when you show your different things in your classes. It, it brings a, a realness to these stories that all of a sudden they, they get even more drawn into. You know, the other item before we, we're going to wrap up soon, we're over an hour, I think, or pretty much an hour. I love the Beatle headphones. And I was wondering, you know, they have their marketing piece that says, sell the Beatles' own listening system. And the Beatle phone's logo is pretty interesting. The, the beat is in lowercase, the L is capital, and then the E is like upper, uh, I don't know what they call it there, but that was an interesting item, Beatles headphones. Can you talk about exactly. that? Exactly. Well, and that's another one like the harmonica. They didn't make any new Beatle headphones just for this. They took something that it cost, uh, took some something they already were marketing, already had on their shelf, already were manufacturing, and all of a sudden they put some Beatles stickers on it and came up with this really nice graphic for the front and a, and a nice ad in the trade magazines uh, telling them how they can people can sell the Beatles in their own listening system. And all of a sudden, it, it's, it's a wonderful wow factor. And it, it's just an, uh, another model that they had they're just marketing a little bit different. Yeah, by Cost Electronics. I mean, that's a pretty good name. So they made. The, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah pretty exactly. good item. Well, Terry. I mean, any other questions from our two professors in studio here, Steve? I just want to comment that uh, I mean, this is a, a a beautiful book, and I am very happy that you put it together. I hope it's received very very well and sells well for you because it's really. Uh, it, it's a unique piece, obviously, and it's it's put together so well that uh, I I hope you get what uh, I hope you get back what you've put into it. 
Yeah, no exactly. kidding. Thank you. It is a beautiful book, Terry, and uh, we congratulate you, Professor Gallant. Anything you want to say to uh, Mr. Terry? It, it, this is yeah. It is a it is a fantastic uh, piece of work, and I and I and as I've already mentioned, I will probably uh, uh, reproduce for my students uh, some of the uh, the opening uh, prefaces and uh, forewords and introductions, um, just the way it puts things in in context. It even talks about how these material objects are important in our uh, reconstruction of memory. Um, the only other last item, I assume this is also just UK, and this is a, I'm very fond of this, and so is Chachi, the Beatles wallpaper. Yes. Is, yes. Was, was that yeah. just UK? That, yeah, and okay. you know, there was a debate by me whether to put that in there, no, because, but I, I actually said no, because that is a UK item. It was not made in the United States, it was made in the UK. Well, there's a there's a bit of it running around in the U.S. now. Yeah. <laughs> well, they 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 ship a ton of it yeah. over to the U.S. So that's why you know, and I kind of was trying to go with stuff that was really made in the U.S. That kind of thing, but sure. uh, but I did draw the line with the wallpaper. But yes, it was all over. I think Pennies even sold that same beetle wallpaper. I've seen ads from the 60s from Pennies that have Beetle wallpaper in there. And, Ch and Chachi has most of it, by the way. The yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a pretty significant role uh, uh, of Beatles wallpaper, and the students love to see that. Yeah, yeah that, that, that would probably yeah. be a, a big thing, yeah. too, Chachi. Yeah. They big really item. love seeing that. Yeah. But there was one other thing I made a note of, and I do want to bring it up. Uh, Brian actually got his cousin to produce sweaters, so that must have been a UK product because I didn't see it in the book. Uh, do you know any background oh, yeah, on that? Yeah, it's 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 a UK product. It's in the uh, early part when I talk about the kind of the history before that. The 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 one of the very first things, if not the very first things they made in the UK, was a black Beatles sweater that he got his cousin uh, to make. And on that sweater, they put a patch. They had the John Paul George and Ringo with the guitar on that. So these Beatles sweaters weren't going very well. Um, so his cousin pleaded with Brian, Brian, can I rip the patches off of it and try to sell them separately because i uh, not making any money off of this. So he, he did allow his cousin to rip the patch, patches off the sweaters. So he sold the patches separately and he did much better with the patches. And the patch is what you find on the UK version of the rice Krispies box. The back of it has got the patch that they are selling from 1963. That's how you could order a patch was on the back of the Rice Krispies box. Unbelievable. And then one other, th <laughs> one other thing is Capital made about $15 million on Beatles records just in 1964. Um, and Nicky Byrne was quoted as saying that they would make $50 million in that year if I'm not mistaken uh, from Beatle merchandise. Was that in fact the case? Uh, that was the case. I've never seen the actual final quote. There were so many by the end of 1964. NIMS and Celtab, they were suing each other. Plus, the employees of Celtab were suing each other. There was, their own employees were suing oh, each other. My Lord. So nobody has ever, has ever come up with one final figure that you can come up with. But let's just say it was a lot of money. And, you know, we didn't even get into that. I mean, by the end of 64, <laughs> everyone was suing everybody. Yeah. Not even a year of doing this. Sue me, sue you blue. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. <laughs> and there's so much money to be yeah. made. Can't we all just get along in the sandbox and make money? It was just nuts. <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyway, it's, one, like, it's like the one podcast thing I've business. Never fi- <laughs> one thing I've never figured out yet, and I need to, I need to ask <laughs> the, uh, an actual attorney how this works. You've got NIMS as the parent company. NIMS decides it's going to create a, a child of that company called CellTab. Well, if NIMS doesn't like what CellTab is doing, why can't NIMS just say, CellTab, stop doing yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it can't. It, it, they, they had to sue each other to to get anything done, which is always kind of weird to me. So I still, as part of my notes, is I need a lawyer to explain to me why you, why you have to sue your child to get anything done. Yeah, the corporate office is calling. <laughs> we have to get our shit together, you know? Exactly. It's crazy. Now, let me, let me ask you another quick question. This is going to go on and on. <laughs> what is Nat Weiss's role in all this? The American attorney who was working on all this. His role, he got busy. He got really busy. Uh, when when after when after seven months after the after the light bulb went off with uh, Brian Epstein that he said wait a minute I need to re- get, renegotiate a new contract we're still in sixty four so when when that negotiation starts and then starts suing CellTab because they don't think they're getting the right uh, royalties and everything and the one CellTab employee starts suing the other CellTab employee because they think uh, Nikki Burns is having too many parties and take spending too much on chauffeurs and everything and not enough. That, Nat Weiss, the attorney of all that, gets really busy is what happens there. Uh, and uh, is it true that there's not even a photograph of what Nikki Burns looks like? I even ask, and I keep saying Tony Bramwell because he was a very good source. I even asked Tony. I said, Tony, you were there. You have met the guy. Do you have a photograph? And he, he said, well, now that you mentioned it, no, I don't. He said, I'll look around and see if I can find one. I cannot find one. I put the call out everywhere I can for in, in social media with my memorabilia guys everywhere. I said, I just want a picture of Nikki Byrne to put somewhere. I, I couldn't find one for the book. And to this day, I can still not find one. That's pretty amazing. So Terry Crane, go ahead. I'm sorry, Terry, go ahead. No, 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 that's. So if you guys ever run across one, especially with your students, put give your students uh, an assignment one day. Tell them to find me a photograph. And here's a clue, professors in the room. He has blonde <laughs> hair. <laughs> He's a very handsome blonde haired man with a girlfriend in a hotel. Find old pictures of Tab Hunter. Uh, yeah, he has two Cadillacs and a chauffeur. So, anyway, we're speaking to, we've been talking over an hour now to Terry Crane, author Terry Crane, with a really an astounding book, a beautiful book to look look at and look through. It's called NEMS and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the U.S. 1964 to 1966. My friend, what a success this book is. I was just so taken by it and I congratulate you for a great job and of course our, our friend Vivek uh, wrote the forward and Jude is our dear friend too wrote the introduction and those pardon are, me Chach I, sure. I take it Terry we can find the book on Amazon wherever we find books or where can we find it? Yes you can you can find it on Amazon you can find it on eBay uh, it's it's on a site called the Fab Gear Company you can fabgear.company you can find it there uh, well, I try to try to put it as many places as I could oh, God bless you what a great effort two years of hard work and uh, I congratulate you for not losing your mind because that's a lot of balls you're <laughs> juggling in this book, man. It was really, really amazing book, and I just love reading it, and uh, I will own it forever and, and cherish it because it's really a great piece. And I like to match my items to what's in the book, so that's pretty awesome. So Steve, Min- Steve Minichello, a Beatles professor at 
Worcester State University. Once again, Steve, thanks for coming in. Yes. And Worcester Polytech. And Worcester Polytech, yeah. correct. And uh, and are you off for the summer now? Not off teaching? for the summer. Okay. Yep. And you're teaching Beatles back in the fall. Of course. Okay. Professor Gallant from Suffolk University in Boston. You're off for the summer and. Well, I'm still working for the summer. As uh, Terry knows, uh, you know, undergraduate advising, we work all year long. <laughs> I always tell Correct. the faculty, yes, exactly. But yes, yeah, so we'll, be, uh, we'll be doing Beatles again in the fall. Terry, I hope you had a great time. We thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did, too. I love that you guys very professional, do a wonderful job, and I appreciate the fact that you allow me to come on the show. Thanks again. Well, we're going to have you on my radio show soon, too. So this is the podcast. It's called okay. Get Back to the Beatles. And me, your host, Chachi LaPrette, with David Gallant, my co-host, Steve Minichella, sitting in today. And, of course, author Terry Crane. Go out and get the book, Nems, and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the U.S., 1964 to 1966. Terry, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Okay, talk soon. And, gentlemen, as we wrap up, any uh, closing? Now, you haven't seen yesterday yet as of today, I right? I haven't seen yesterday. I did have one story, though, Josh. Sure. And, uh, and it's a, collectible, a collecting story. Okay. And um, back in maybe 1977, 78, I was teaching special ed mm-hmm. in, uh, in a school system. And I was at one of those discount stores. It used to be called Lincoln Pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And it was a pharmacy that had discount items. Okay. Uh, fire sale items and such and I happened to be walking to pick up a prescription and I saw this slightly stained copy of uh, the uh, Yellow Submarine pop-up book oh yes you remember that one oh, you sure. pop them out you make a mobile out of them mm-hmm. and, and such and uh, so there was about three behind it and then I, I happened to I wet my tongue I mean wet my finger wiped it down a little bit it was just like a fire sale thing and everything came off it was it was beautiful so I picked them up because I think they were being sold for 50 cents a piece just to get rid of them. And they were the original 1968s. And uh, so I went and asked for the manager. And I said, you know, I'm a special ed teacher. And I think these kids would really enjoy something like this. Nice and colorful. It'll be a thing they can do. They can make mobiles and such. If you have any more. And he, he said, yeah, I got some more in the back. I got one more box in the back. So I he went in and got the box, of which there was about 40 of them in there. And and I said, well, can I get a discount if I take all of them? And he said, uh, give me 20 cents a piece for them. Wow. <laughs> and so I had 40 of them, or 45 of them at the time, to trade for other items. And that wow. was one of my, that was, that was the best find I've ever had, the coincidental find of the, of a great beetle item. Look at that. And to think I had to give up that kidney for a butcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody. Terry, thanks again, my friend. We'll talk thanks, soon. Guys. Hope you had a good time. We Bye. loved it, my friend. We loved it. Great conversation. Thanks, great book. Okay, everybody. This okay. Is Bye-bye. Get, bye-bye. This is Get Back to the Beatles right here in the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. And you can also find us on Spotify and iTunes and all over the place. Mr. David Yaz, everything good over there? Good show today, right? Everything's wonderful. I point out that Terry Crane is a great father. Follow on Twitter. For those of you on Twitter, it's at Terry Crane, Terry with a Y, C-R-A-I-N. Check it out. Fantastic. Okay, everybody. We'll be back very, very soon. And we're going to, our next podcast, Professor, we've been talking about doing a Beatles movie podcast, a non-Beatles movie, much like yesterday. Yes. And yeah, I uh, want to hold uh, your hand. Yes. Uh, movies uh, about the Beatles that aren't really about the Beatles. Something yes. like your yesterday's, uh, I want to hold your hand across the universe, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. Yeah, sure. Like 
So we're going to yeah, do Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're, that's well, it. Uh, that's going to be coming. That's Paul. That's going to be coming up very soon on our next podcast. That is actually true, yeah. Thank yeah. you. And you can find all kinds of uh, shows here on the Boston Podcast Network. And, of course, you can listen to all of our past podcasts on Get Back to the Beatles. Be well, everybody. Peace and lunch. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.